I invite you to stand for the reading of the word today. Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. It's our custom to stand together, which makes us pause and pay attention and prepare to hear the reading of the word. Luke, chapter 4, this morning. When he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll, the prophet Isaiah, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is the word of God. God. You can be seated. It is a synagogue hometown day for Jesus, this passage. He has been on the road, he's actually been out in the wilderness with the evil one and a little moving around and now he's come home, I imagine, to sleep and to eat some home-cooked food and to rest and relax, and it is now the Sabbath. I don't know how it worked in the house where you were raised, but usually if people knew, my siblings and I, we were coming to town, someone from the church would call and say, psst, can the kids do music on Sabbath? I've always wondered, is it Jesus' mother who got him into this? (laughs) He's been in the wilderness for 40 days. He's exhausted. Jesus, would you mind reading the... Scripture for church today? So he does. He reads the passage worn and familiar to them. He unrolls the scroll, they listen, he rolls it up, and when Jesus is done, the Bible says they were so impressed with the gracious words coming out of his mouth. Chapter four carries that story. They're so impressed, but then an unexpected chain of events happen and one thing leads to the next is that Joseph's boy, hey, wait a minute, hey, wait a minute, hey, wait a minute. And before this is over, verse 28 says, all in the synagogue, when they had heard these things from Jesus, they were filled with what? (laughs) Wrath? This is the hometown boy who came home for the weekend to read scripture in church. They're filled with wrath. Wrath is a big word in the New Testament. It means exactly that. So much wrath that they bully Jesus out to the edge of the cliff. Many of you know how this story goes. They take him to the cliff on the edge of Nazareth and they are going to push him over because they're not having any of this. Oh, these were the people who just sang the doxology and the special music. These are the people who have potluck in the trunk of the car. These are the people who just paid their tithes and their offerings and they're ready to push him over. It turns out on the Sabbath, the great festival of rest, this is a restless congregation. What is it? What's the problem? He, he, this is the scroll of Isaiah it, 400 years ago. I mean, this is a big promise. This is the promise that sustained them while they were captives, when they were prisoners, when they were away from their homeland. This was the promise that kept them looking forward. Well, one day God will come and the prisoners will go free and the blind will see, oh, one day. 
This was supposedly a good news text. What in the world has gone wrong this particular day? It was good news 400 years ago. Maybe it was good news one Sabbath before. But now when Jesus comes to town, what is the problem? When Jesus reads the scroll from Isaiah, friends, he adds one more sentence. Because he's Jesus and he can. He says, today, that old text 400 years old, it will be fulfilled in our hearing. Today, we'll not be waiting for the cross of Golgotha and the empty tomb and resurrection morning. We'll not be waiting for one day way beyond the blue any longer. If you heard the text read, today, something will be happening. If you heard the text read today, prisoners, today, the blind, today, those who are oppressed. Well, just a minute, Jesus. <laughs> okay, the blind, we, healers, we're healers. We like that idea. The people in jail are going to go free. All of them? Which one? Jesus, all of them? The oppressed? Could we talk about which oppressed you had in mind? They take Jesus to the cliff and they are ready to throw him over. What happened this day to the faithful in Nazareth? They heard their sacred text, and they went mad. All right, that's story number one. Here's story number two. This is a few hundred years earlier. Scene number two, the Persian king has allowed Nehemiah to go. Nehemiah has been working for the Persian king as the cup holder, that's an important job, but he lets him go home because Nehemiah's heart are with his people. They've all now been, they've come out of exile, out of slavery. They've left Babylon to go home. They're rebuilding things. Nehemiah wants to be where the people are, and so the king says go, and Nehemiah arrives, and they've already got a little bit of a temple rebuilt. This is the temple that was just raised in the prior wars, right? They've got a little bit of a temple built. It's an inglorious temple. It won't impress too many people, but it's a little bit of a temple. Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah rallies the people. It, they're going to build the wall. It's this remarkable 52-day episode where everyone is called to task. Everyone gets to work. They take turns rotating in crews. Craftspeople are involved and kind of an ordinary muscular people are involved, and the women get to work too. The kids are involved. Everybody works. For 52 days, they go at this thing, and at the end of 52 days, they've got kind of a short, puny little wall going around a very inglorious-looking temple. 52 days, they're exhausted. 52 days, they have, they have done work with one hand and slept with a weapon in the other because they're still real not safe where they live. For 52 days, they've been the ridicule of their enemies who are just over those hills and the quarreling and the sleeping bags right next door in the nation of Israel. For 52 days, they've been working on this. This is, by the way, the temple. This is the home of the divine. This is no small, this is no small part of their life. They've got an inglorious temple and a very short wall and exhaustion has set in. And this is when someone shouts to Nehemiah, call Ezra, get the scroll, go get the Bible. We need to hear some Bible right now. 
We're exhausted and we're worn out and this is a mess, whatever we're creating right now. Someone get Ezra and get the scroll. We need to hear a word from God. So Ezra gets the scroll and stands up on top of a box, says that the people stood for the reading of the word like we do here, they stood up and Ezra read only not, uh, not four verses, Ezra read half the day. He reads half of the day and then all the translators move in and around the people because the language of the text is not necessarily the language of the people and they need translators. It's an ESL situation. And they read the text and then they read some more and they read some more and all the people listen. We think Ezra must be the big deal in this story because he's standing up front with the squirrel in his hand. He's got the microphone. But it turns out all of the people show up and do the work of listening to the story together. If you were to take Nehemiah's, these chapters in through here, chapter 8, 9, 10, every time we see all the people, all the people, all the people, we would realize this is the work of all the people, hearing their story. When they hear their story, the Bible says they fall on their face and weep. It's not kind of a one tissue weep, it's an entire Kleenex box of weeping. We've been doing some weeping in our community this week. It's a Kleenex box kind of weeping. Why do the people weep? They hear their story with God and they weep. That's the second story from scripture this morning. In one story, they go mad. In the other story, they're sad both because they've heard from the sacred text. These are two of the very rare times in scripture, in the Bible, where the Bible actually tells us what scripture is for, where we see scripture featured in scripture, where we see them reaching for something and reading it and working on it and allowing it in the circle and in the community. One story they become mad and the other story they become sad and when we listen to these two stories, we can't help but ask ourselves this morning, what is it that scripture does? Not what it says, I'm not asking what does scripture say? I'm not asking about the ink on paper. I'm not asking what arguments does scripture settle? I'm not asking what points does scripture prove? I'm asking, what is it that scripture does in our lives? Here are two times in the Bible where we see scripture doing something and one story they're sad. On the left, that's the ruins and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and in the other story on the cliff of a hill in Nazareth, they are mad. John Brunt's book that we've been talking about for a few weeks, if you didn't get your copy, please remember, we have many more copies, we're passing them out to the entire congregation. If we run out and you want one, we'll buy more. John Brunt's book, Enjoying Your Bible, he insists that it is possible for us to enjoy the text. He doesn't mean a superficial kind of joy that it'll bring a smile to our face once in a while. He says there's some kind of a deep abiding contentment, some kind of joy is possible with our Bibles. And he insists that it happens when we read the Bible holistically. That's his word. We would say, we read, we read the big story. We're re every time we open scripture, we're looking for the big story. What's the story that we're part of? What's the large story? 
that when we read the Bible holistically looking for the large story, it is possible we will become content and enjoy our Bibles. Mercy. Now remember, last week I tell you, in his book he tells this story, this is what caught his attention. He's guest visiting a church, preaching. He hears two Sabbath school classes going, and I wanna keep this story in our mind for these four weeks. If you were here last week, maybe you remember. Uh, Pastor Brunt says, in the balcony there was one group, and in the lower level of the church there was another. He chose to sit in the balcony so he could eavesdrop both of them, because why not? In the lower level, it was the older people, the aunts and uncles and the grandmas and the grandpas, the whiter-haired people. And for the entire length of the Bible study session on a Saturday morning, there was a question from the front and an answer from someone in the pew. They would raise their hand. They would provide the answer. They would put a blank in the lesson study. The teacher would go on and ask the next question. Someone would raise their hand, give an answer from Scripture. They would fill in the blank, and they did this for an hour. Nowhere during this time did they actually talk about those texts, but they filled in all the answers. And we would call that a biblical study group, Dr. Brent says. But then the other group up in the balcony were kind of younger adults, and most of them married, and they spent the time actually catching up and sharing their lives and talking about what had been happening in their world and listening to each other. And John says, sometimes sharing a little more detail than we would think you would do. And when they got done with the end of their study time together, they prayed for each other one at a time. They named them their friends and they named what was happening in their lives. And they said amen and went on to church and not once during that study group did they ever open a Bible. So Dr. Brunt asks us to hold those two scenes in tension. Can we close the gap? Is it possible that the group that is living in the everyday real world could actually open the Bible and find meaning here for all the problems that they shared? And is it possible that the older group who's very used to filling in blanks in lesson studies could actually pause and talk about what these texts mean in our life? The holistic story. He sounds right <clears throat> and it sounds inviting what he's suggesting to us. And then we remember our own histories with the Bible. How were you raised with the Bible? Do you resonate with one of those classes more than the other? Are you the fill in the blank group? Are you the we kinda don't open it anymore group? And what makes us turn into these kinds of people where we actually don't wanna open the Bible anymore? When I was uh, pastoring the children of this congregation, it was a teenage kid who came to me one Sabbath and said, I just need a text, get it to me as soon as you can. There's gotta be a text in the Bible. My mom wants to make us vegan. <laughs> I know there's a Bible passage for this. Pastor, what is it? And preferably, could you get it before dinner? Isn't there a text for that? We ask this question, tell the truth, right church? Isn't there a text for that? I told this child, I'm pretty sure you don't wanna play this game. He said, oh, I do. I said, cause your mama's gonna come to me next and say, isn't there a, child, a text for my child? Isn't there something about children have to obey? Oh, I'm pretty sure you don't wanna play this game, student. Like, what's your history with the Bible, church? Have you been looking through for the answers in the text to prove the point or win the day? 
Dr. Brunt is telling us we will need to back up and read holistically. It's a different conversation and it's difficult for people of the book, for Protestant Christians, for those of us, a denomination birthed in the 19th century and the fervor that was alive in America and the quest with our Bibles open. This is work for Protestants who are people of the book. And we will argue you until you lose. We know how to do this. Come on, we were born on an argument. We've said that for a lot of years around here. We shouldn't be surprised. We grew out of an argument. We're pretty good at arguing with the Bible open. A people of the book. La Sierra University up at the library has a booklet that I was quite interested in. I've been looking at this for a few weeks. This little booklet's written in the 50s and it is authored by HMS Richards. Check this title out. Look at it for a moment. HMS Richards, the evangelist, the cutting edge ahead of his time evangelist, the sole winning voice for generations actually in North America, our divinity school named in his honor, hard nuts cracked. And he's got a sledgehammer in his hand. He's responding to a little booklet that someone wrote towards Adventist Christians that was simply titled, Hard Nuts for Seventh-day Adventists, where the topic is the Sabbath and the biblical Sabbath and the Seventh-day Sabbath. And someone had written an entire booklet accusing Adventist Christians, you're silly for a Seventh-day Sabbath, a Saturday Sabbath. You can't prove that from the Bible. So in this little booklet, <laughs> HMS Richards takes those points on one at a time. It's 16 pages. It's a little bit delightful reading, by the way. If you're interested in it, several copies at the library. Let me give you a small example. One of the protests is you can't actually believe in a literal Seventh-day Sabbath because how would you keep warm in a cold climate? Now, why is that a question? Does someone know? Adventist Christians who knows your Bible? Because Deuteronomy says we shall not light what? A fire on the Sabbath. So all of you Adventists, you better live in the desert. And for 16 pages, HMS Richards goes on and on and on. And he says, he says uh, with many, many, many Bible texts referenced, by the way, he says in this little booklet, these are arguments they are neither original nor convincing. They're quibbles. They're misunderstandings of Scripture. We will use our good Bible nutcracker, and we will see in the end that these are just empty shelves. Shells. We'll get out the old Adventist Bible nutcracker. If all you have in your hand is an ax or a sledgehammer, friends. If what Protestant Christians carry around with our Bibles open is something like a sledgehammer, if that's what we grew up on, then this sermon series gives us time to pause and ask the question again, oh my word, what might be required of me? I can complain about the way we've treated the Bible in the past, but how shall we create a new experience with the Bible? 
Maybe we shouldn't fill the Sabbath school rooms with children and do big Bible quizzes and make sure they, they guess the right text and we give them prizes for memorizing things exactly where they were found and said in the right order. Maybe there are bigger and better ways we could be talking about scripture with our children. It's uh, Abraham Maslow from the Maslow Hierarchy of Needs who says, I suppose it's tempting if the only tool you have is a hammer to treat everything as if it were a nail. And it'll be 20, 30 years later that the philosopher uh, Abraham Kaplan comes along behind him and edits that, give a a small child a hammer and he will find everything he encounters needs pounding. If what we have in our hand is the good old Bible nutcracker, we will keep getting the same experience. Now please hear me, there are times we need to know what our Bible says and what it means. But that will always come after we ask the question, what does the Bible do? What does it actually do in our lives? Why did we gather some of us last night with the Bible open and read Psalms out loud together? Why did we gather and read from the Apostle Paul who says we live in these fragile bodies in a broken world? What is it that the Bible actually does in our lives? So at Nazareth that day, there's an angry group of people because Jesus is actually saying, today something's gonna change. And when Jesus says, today something is going to change, that unravels them from the inside out. No, we don't, we don't want things to change, Jesus. We, we, we like you and we want, we, we want the end to come now, but please don't tell us we have to be part of it. No, today, In your hearing, things will start to change. We're not waiting for the second coming. Today, you can expect to partner with God. Today, you can watch mercy and redemption break into the world. Today, you'll see religious and civil and global arguments could be, we could work on those. No, Jesus. What is it that the Bible does? It it messes with us on the inside, church. It, it causes us to, to reimagine how we're, we'll move around the world. And in the other passage, why are the people weeping? Why do they fall to the ground and weep and weep and weep? I imagine it's not because someone unrolled a list of rules and reminded them how sinful they are. Maybe that happened. Yes, maybe they heard rules. Maybe they also heard psalms and hymns. And maybe they heard some of their history and some of their rituals. Maybe they heard someone read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And God called it to be, and it was good. Maybe they heard someone talk about Abraham and Sarah and the promise to bring babies to a household and make their lives beautiful so that the whole world's lives would be blessed. Maybe in those scrolls that day, they heard, they heard of, of, of uh, Joseph and the coat of colors and going into Egypt and they heard the cry from Pharaoh and they heard the people's protest, let my people go, let us out of here. Maybe they heard the words from standing at the foot of the Mount Sinai and remembering again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We have a history together. This is what it is to read kind of a holistic view of the Bible. We open scripture and we ask again, what does this scripture do in our lives? This scripture reminds us who we are and whose we are. 
The scripture reminds us in a world where we're disoriented, in a world where we're dusty and dirty, in, in the story with Jerusalem and Nehemiah and Ezra, they're sitting in the middle of the streets, 52 days building, disappointed, confused, disoriented. Can someone just read us our story? And they hear, they hear the story and they cry. Their disappointing life, that's not the whole story. They hear their story because amnesia has set in. You forget who you are and whose you are. This is what the Bible does in our lives, church. This is why we read scripture. If I had to do this all over again raising children, I would read scripture so differently with them today. We wonder why teenagers and young adults don't want their Bibles open. It's probably us. I would read scripture differently with my children today. I would find the big story and I would put it all over the walls of our house. And I would make sure they would see the epics that they're part of, how it shapes their life and how the disorientation and the disappointment of this week all fits into a bigger, broader story. Hope is on the horizon. I can't feel it this week, but it is there because this is my story. We call this holistic reading of scripture and on our darkest days, it will breathe life into our souls. You might not win any Bible contests, but you will be alive. Holistic reading of scripture. This is what happened for the group gathered around the temple that day, dirty, disappointed, disoriented. They're crying and Ezra says to them, stop your crying. Ezra chapter eight, go eat rich food and drink something sweet, he said to them. Send portions of this to any who have, are you ready? Who have nothing, are you ready? The day is holy, it belongs to God, don't be sad, because the joy from the Lord is your strength. The Levites also calmed the people, saying, be quiet, this day is holy, don't be sad. Then all the people went to eat and to drink and to send portions and to have a great celebration because they understood what had been said to them. We belong to a big story. I can only see a little puny wall today and a very inglorious temple, but guess what? We belong to a large story. This is what scripture does. So it is not a rule book for me in my life, and it is not actually a code book. It is, for me, the metaphor I settled on long ago, a photo album, a family scrapbook. This is my history, and these are my people. This is where I came from, and this is where our children came from. This orients us towards our future. When I open this up, I see, I can see my people. Or maybe this will make it more clear. Our family has been recovering these, this old footage. Super 8 films, they don't have any volume, but they, they, ca they capture the activity of a household. Sometimes you have to look at the pictures again to remember the house that you're a part of, the family that you're a part of. Look at the screen and, and watch the house that I was raised in. That's my mother, and those are three very small children. And there's a fourth one almost in there. You look at the picture and you say, wow, we really were all tiny all at once. 
This my older sister and I were 18 months apart and she is always the firstborn. She'll always be the firstborn. And she knows how to ride the trike and I'm watching her and it's gonna be my turn too. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you ride it. It's okay, we pull it, don't we? We pull it. Cool, things on the end. Okay, let's try this. Yeah, this works. Success. This is my brother and the apocalyptic haircuts. And this is a very kind church member with very sharp scissors. Bob, who knows how to do this. And this is my mother telling my brother, no, you'll go to counseling later. You'll get a haircut now. <laughs> and we will turn the film off before he really loses it. And I know I grew up in Portland when the Fremont Bridge was built and opened. I know I, that really did happen. I'm not just making it up. Sure enough, there's family footage the day they opened that large bridge across the Willamette River in Portland and we could all go on walk on foot over cross before they put the cars on. And there, yep, there I am with my umbrella. I was there. That's for sure. That's our family. That's the Fremont Bridge. There's my mom with a bunch of kids. I didn't imagine it, it really happened. We lived in that city, we walked on that bridge. Those were our mountains. I'm not from the desert, I'm from the snow people. I thought I live in the desert, but then I opened my pictures and I realized I'm the snow people, it's Rainier. We think, Rainier, it's one of them. And look in the distance. And I'm from this Norwegian family. My grandparents, we all gathered at Christmas with my cousins and my grandparents. Year after year after year, and in this photo, this is not long before my grandfather dies. And I'm sitting with him and it's clear he doesn't know how to open his gift by himself, he's disoriented. And when he gets the lid off and sees what's inside, He asks, he's confused. He cries. He cries because he's at that stage of life where we cry easy. And we're not really sure what do we do with this gift. And, and if you look carefully, there's a teenager who's not gonna look at the camera because she's crying too. And every once in a while, She so slyly wipes her tears. And the story that began with my mother showing all the children how to open the gifts is the children showing grandparents how to open the gifts. And those are our people. And that's where I'm from. And when I'm disoriented in this world and I can't remember, I look back. Yes, I have a people. I'm not a child of the desert. The promised land is snow. We open the Bible because we have to be reminded week after week and sometimes on difficult weeks, La Sierra, we have to be reminded we are people of a promise, broken, confused, 
but never down and out. We belong to God. That's what the Bible does. Amen.